Hello, Words Matter listeners. To celebrate the relaunch of the show, we are offering membership in the DSR network for just $5 a month or a bargain at $50 per year. Membership gets you access to bonus content, ad-free listening, not just on Words Matter, but other great shows like Deep State Radio, which I'm also on from time to time, the DSR Daily Brief, Next in Foreign Policy, and more. To take advantage of this offer, all you have to do is go to the dsrnetwork.com backslash buy. That's the dsrnetwork.com backslash buy. Thank you and hope to see you on our member site. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. Democrats effectively have to run the table. And Dr. Kavita Patel. We're in for some painful terms up ahead. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms. And today is an incredible episode where we are going to spend the episode talking not only about the midterms, but what people, what leaders, what campaign workers, what you are saying about them. So we're very excited. And we will also just touch on a couple of highlights. We can't help but talk about the passage, at least the Senate passing, the Inflation Reduction Act, and some of the incredible drama that unfolded over the weekend, which amounted to what I would say is still one of the most generational achievements by a Congress. And Hopefully, Norm and I can talk a little bit about that. So thank you, of course, always for listening and on with the show. Norm, we have had quite a week and it's not even the end of the week. We've had uh, significant progress since our last podcast, as we had hoped. We had had the Senate finally cutting that deal with Kristen Sinema really, uh, really pushing things to the wire and some action by the parliamentarian on some of the uh, Medicare drug provisions. But what ended up passing, was something that came over the water cooler in my neck of the woods and probably yours about how much will this matter for the Democrats in terms of the midterms. And it brought up a lot of the issues about where we might see some outlook that could bolster Democrats' progress to actually keep the Democratic majorities in Congress and maybe even gain some seats in the Senate. And we can hopefully talk about some of those actions. And, and certainly enough fodder just out of the last 10 days, Kansas primaries, Inflation Reduction Act. We've got an FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago raising a lot of interesting um, eyebrows, along with economic numbers that I think the Friday's Jobs report that also came out, which showed an additional 520 some odd thousand jobs that were added clearly putting a dent in kind of this, quote, we are in a recession phrase that has been used by Republicans. So maybe we can drill down on some of the seats and some of the races you're watching. I'm watching some, not only of the high profile ones, like the Senate seat in Pennsylvania with our dear friend, Dr. Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman, but also some of the local races. So Norm, give us your summary of where we are and what you're looking forward to. This has definitely been a very good week very good two weeks for Democrats. Even adding to what you said, Kavita, we also have economists dramatically changing their inflation forecast. And so we not only have this robust jobs number, which says we're not headed into a recession, but we have gasoline prices dropping for 50 plus consecutive days, probably just about to go under that magic $4 mark. 
and we have some suggestion overall that inflation may be dropping. Now, it's still early. We've got three months to go, and a lot can happen, but this was great. And the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is a huge thing for Democrats, not just because of what's in it, and it will have some direct impact on people, including especially in prescription drug prices. And it's going to provide an impetus, I think, for a significant portion of the liberal base of the Democratic Party on climate. But it's also the suggestion that they can actually get something done. And if you put that together with the gun safety bill, the chip bill, and uh, the earlier actions that were taken that put $3 trillion out there in uh, spending, it's a heck of a record for Biden. Now, one thing that may play out in a fashion we can't predict, the search warrant on Mar-a-Lago has one downside to it. And that is that we only had one day to do a victory dance on the Inflation Reduction Act before the news overcame it. And a part of the problem with all of these legislative accomplishments is you need to have it resonate for a long time out there for people to recognize that it's happened, that it's good, and that it will affect your life. And if we now have the rest of August taken up with other issues, that is going to make it harder to come back and get the credit due for this particular bill. You know, having said that, for Democrats to be able to be on the offensive instead of on the defensive is very important. And before we get to specific races, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Biden's approval rating is low. It should go up now, but it remains historically low. In the past, the president's approval was a very good indicator of the likely outcome of a midterm election. But what we've now seen is that the uh, so-called generic polls, when people are asked, do you intend to vote for a Democrat or Republican in uh, November, that Democrats are doing maybe 15 points better than uh, what Biden's approval rating is. And if that trend continues, that's going to be very good news for Democrats. The other point is that we don't know what the actions and the movement taken here affecting not just Donald Trump, but January 6th, as these investigations move forward and more and more incriminating evidence comes out. How many voters are likely to vote on the basis of what happened in 2020 and in January of 2021? How many are going to vote on where we are and where we're going? We know that the economy and, and abortion and guns are very big issues. And maybe those can work to Democrats' favor, but we also know the Republican base may get more and more riled up by what's happening. It's still important that we let justice follow where it needs to follow, but we've got a lot happening out there that can complicate some of these races. So let's look at some of the races. And, and I'll just kind of touch on something. Uh, I wanted to pull up our latest I still often look at uh, 538.com just because they do a lot of like aggregation of data and it gives me a little bit of framing for where we are. And they're still showing in kind of 59 out of 100 of their simulation models, 59 times that Democrats not only keep the Senate, but could potentially pick up some seats in the Senate, which is incredible. So we can talk about some of these Senate races. 
Let me start, Norm, though, with what looks like it will be a very interesting matchup in the state of Wisconsin, something that's happened over kind of the last several weeks. A big, what I would have said to you if we had recorded several weeks ago is that the Democratic primary for the Senate in Wisconsin was going to be one of the biggest races on the ballot. So that primary race with Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, very progressive, as well as three of his leading opponents were all kind of in the thick of it. But uh, all three of his leading opponents dropped out, endorsed him, putting Barnes kind of in a collision course with uh, our favorite Republican senator, Ron Johnson. Lots of uh, interesting comments that Ron Johnson has made about the 2020 presidential election, as well as his role in the fake electors, uh, of which I suspect there's even more information that'll come out. But interestingly enough, you've got Barnes, who has also had to put some distance, Norm, between some of his, you know, abolish ice, some of the portrayal that he's already been set up as being, quote unquote, too left wing for the state of Wisconsin, which is something that I'm sure the Republicans will just go on a tear at. And it's an incredible kind of opportunity to see if some of the things that you just touched on, gun violence, kind of where where we are in our country and where Democrats kind of want to come out. It's been very interesting because there hasn't been a lot of polling, again, because of the dynamics where we thought we would have a really thick primary race with Barnes and some other Democrats. So there hasn't been as much neck on neck kind of, you know, Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes polling. But it is very interesting that even some of the recent polls locally in Wisconsin are showing an incredibly close race. And so that's one that I'm keeping an eye on. I mentioned already some of the other Senate races that I've, I've been kind of watching closely can't help but again touch on on Oz and and Fetterman where I think it's very clear that I hope Fetterman will take it. What are you watching? Let me say Kavita that you know there are two streams we need to follow here in terms of Democrats ability to hold the Senate or to add to those seats. The first thing they need to do is shore up their own vulnerable members. And there are several who are vulnerable who we need to keep an eye on. One is in Nevada where Cortez Masto, in a state that has been more blue of late, but where we've seen that the Hispanic vote is not a sure thing, and it's much closer than we might have anticipated. I could tell you that, you know, I know a lot of Nevadans who wish that Harry Reid, who was a master at framing issues in the state and getting turnout, was still alive to be able to do that. But that's one very much to keep an eye on. Another is in New Hampshire, where Maggie Hassan has to compete in a state that is purple at best, but plenty close. And if it's a bad year for Democrats or even a difficult year, she's going to face a tough challenge. She would have been in a much worse shape if Governor Chris Sununu had decided to run, but that's still a state that's tough. And then a race that we're all going to be keeping a very close watch on in Georgia, where Raphael Warnock, who I would say has proven to be just a superstar in the Senate, an extraordinarily effective man, is running against somebody who would be a poster child for an individual who should not be anywhere in a galaxy of serving in a public office, Herschel Walker who not only is a serial liar, claiming he had been in the FBI, that he had graduated with honors from the University of Georgia, that he didn't have any other children beyond the one uh, illegitimate child, and it turned out there were four more, who is prone to serious violence, 
who put a gun to the head of his ex-wife and threatened to blow her brains out, who fantasized about shooting somebody and reveling and seeing the blood and guts come out, but then stopped at the last minute, and who can't put two coherent sentences together. And yet in Georgia, the polls show that he's getting anywhere between 42 and 45% support. So here, what we have is a question of how much tribalism, the willingness of people to vote for somebody from their own tribe, even if that person is manifestly unqualified for office, will supersede basic judgment. And in the, you know, 20 years ago, we would have said, there's no way people could vote for an embarrassment like Herschel Walker. But of course, we would have said the same thing about Ron Johnson. We have a lot of other races that are going to be interesting to watch that are getting close that we might not have expected otherwise, where Democrats do have at least a shot of picking up Republican seats. And one of them is North Carolina. It's an open seat. Richard Burr is retiring. The Democratic candidate, Sherry Beasley, has some statewide recognition. She's running a few points behind Bud, uh, the Republican. It's not a state where Democrats normally would think that they've got great chances. But in a year where suburban voters, suburban Republican voters in uh, Charlotte and uh, in the uh, Research Triangle area might be so turned off by Republican extremism and by what's happening on the abortion issue that if Democrats can win a state like that, then they're on a path to maybe having 52 or 53 Democrats in the Senate, which would be huge. I have been closely following some House races. I think that many of us, including myself, have also thought it is very unlikely that there is a scenario where Democrats could, even if they won all the races that are kind of, I would say, close toss-ups, however you want to call plus hold on all to the seats that they're favored to win, they are still short of the majority. But I do think it's clear that the Republicans could come very much under like a 20-seat majority in the House, making it difficult given the dynamics in the House and who the potential leaders in the House might be, making the dynamics in the House even more complicated. So it's interesting, though. I'm curious, Norm, your opinion. How much does Kansas, because I do think this is where the turnout and the Kansas reproductive justice effect could matter, could really matter, not just in the Senate races, could really matter in the House. Do you think that there's any universe where it matters in the House to the extent that the Democrats could keep the majority in the House? Or is it pretty much kind of as we as we're projecting, you know, it's just very hard. The math doesn't work. The math is extraordinarily difficult. It would take a dramatic turnaround even from where we are now. Just to give you an example, the Cook Political Report rates House races from solid Democratic to likely to lean and then to toss up and the same on the Republican side. Right now in the Democratic column, they have 187 seats, which is 31 short of a majority. In the toss up category, there are 34. In the lean Republican, there are 11. So Democrats effectively have to run the table on toss-up races and pick off a few of the seats that now are a little bit red, at least pink, and that's not likely to happen. And the fact is the toss-up seats 
are overwhelmingly seats now held by Democrats. I think it's something like 25 or 26 of those, 26 and eight held by Republicans. So they're going to win some of those seats, some of those Democratic toss-up seats like Angie Craig's district in Minnesota or uh, Annie Cooster's in New Hampshire or Dina Titus's in Nevada, Marcy Captors in Ohio, I think are still more likely than not to go to the Democrats. The question for them in part with the seats that they now hold is whether they can keep moderates like Abigail Spanberger, Alyssa Slotkin, and one who's gotten a lot of attention lately, Elaine Luria of Virginia, in their own camp. But then they're going to have to win some of those Republican seats. And they have options because they're in states like New Mexico, uh, Nebraska, even North Carolina, where the abortion issue may matter. But, you know, it's a heavy lift to be able to hold the House. And even in a good year, it's more likely that they would just keep it relatively close maybe a 10-seat Republican margin. And we're going to have to talk about what it would mean to have a Republican House, given that Kevin McCarthy today basically made threats that were beyond the pale of what they would do if they had the majority. Yeah, I want to actually talk about Spanberger's race, because it is clear. I think the Post had something like, uh, you know, what a difference a summer makes, right? This was Abigail Spanberger, Democrat in 7th District of Virginia, very competitive with a Republican congressional candidate, Yesley Vega, who made her CPAC debut, which should never really be a source of pride, but is probably like at least for the conservative spotlight, kind of a rite of passage. And certainly in Dallas, where the CPAC conference was held, is part of a group of Texas and other states, Virginia, Republican conservative kind of young Latinos who are putting a little bit of a mark to your point about turnout and making very poor assumptions about how about how little Democrats have really worked hard to show that they are the party that can help with not only with black and brown voters, but with all Americans. I think that is reflective in this like wave of, I'll call them, you know, Latino GOP candidates that the Republican Party, to their credit, seem to have recruited, particularly for the midterms launching a several PACs, if I'm not mistaken. I have a friend involved in raising money in one of those PACs in Texas. But really first time large PACs around leadership in the Hispanic caucus and trying to get first time Latino candidates like Yesley Vega, who was a Prince William County official, if I'm not mistaken, Norm, you may re- recall exactly what she's been doing. It's interesting because this is clearly an effort by Republicans between their gerrymandering, which is another reason why I think the House ultimately goes Republican because the combination of gerrymandering and making it incredibly difficult for Democrats to pick up any seats, but then also just some of what we've been talking about with some of these kind of close and toss-up races. I am keeping my eye, not for 2022, but I think this is going to have a significant impact going forward on Republicans really trying to reshape the politics of the South, that includes Virginia, and trying to also really kind of cultivate the Hispanic and Latino voting audience. I will challenge you. I have tried to challenge myself. What have Democrats done to really court that audience? And I and I recall Norm. Do you, I don't know. You know, we've got Alex Padilla in the Senate. We have we have some very prominent Latinos in both the Senate and the House. Becerra, Javier Becerra, until he became a cabinet member and AG in California. 
but you know, it's funny. I grew up in San Antonio and I don't know if you remember Henry Cisneros, who was a HUD secretary in the Clinton administration, but at one point was going to be the first Latino, the first Hispanic president. And there was this real energy. I remember kind of around the nineties around him, Antonio Villaraigosa, right? We had these prominent mayors. We had these prominent people who represented the future. I don't see as much of that. And so it's a really interesting tack. Not sure if it'll actually be successful, but it's something that I do think that Democrats can't take for granted. And as we look to 2024 and think about important states, I do think that the party not only capturing the victories of what we just talked about on a national landscape, hopefully some successful races in the 2022 elections as we're watching and counting down, but also laying down the groundwork for the next 10 years. What is this party going to be defined by? And the reason I keep bringing up uh, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin is because I was one of these people who kind of felt like the progressive part of our party was really kind of taking hold and establishing itself. The rise of Bernie Sanders, the popularity that Elizabeth Warren had and still has. I think Mandela Barnes is like an interesting figure kind of caught in between there, right? He's got the, the youth and the demographics and the promise, but we'll see if it's enough to take on Ron Johnson. You know, the problem I think that they're going to have in Wisconsin is they would make stuff up. But because of some of the things that Mandela Barnes has said, it's going to be very easy for them to pour a fortune into portraying him as an AOC squad type radical. And what has to happen in Wisconsin is he can't spend all of his time denying that. And the focus has to be turned to Ron Johnson, and Democrats have not been very good at that. They haven't been very good at understanding the complexities of Hispanic voters. First, there are a whole lot who don't identify as brown or as Hispanic, and just having candidates, or even in the case of Joe Biden, picking an extraordinary number uh, for judgeships isn't necessarily going to make a difference. What has to happen here, including with Spanberger, is to portray these candidates as radicals, lawless radicals. I should add one thing that, you know, you mentioned gerrymandering, Kavita, and it's important to remember that Republicans have behaved in an utterly lawless fashion in four states, violating judicial decrees to redraw district lines and having it delayed long enough that the courts basically threw up their hands and said, well, you'll have to use these outrageous and illegal district lines. Those actions alone probably make a difference of somewhere between seven and 10 seats that will go to Republicans that otherwise could have gone to Democrats. And that could make all the difference in the world if Democrats even come close. It's a bad situation. And of course, in other cases, judges, Trump appointed judges and other judges have let Republicans get away with outrageous racial gerrymandering too. But it's a challenge now that Democrats face. And in Virginia, where you have at least these two competitive races that are more Southern than uh, suburban, although there are some suburbs attached, in a state that went for Glenn Youngkin, but also elected a Republican lieutenant governor and an attorney general who are even more openly radical, is that a one-off thing, or is it going to play out even more? And one has to hope, for the Democrats' perspective, that the gun issue, and if I were Democrats, Uvalde, which shows 
a Republican establishment turning its back on Hispanics and many of them Republicans and letting kids die and then covering the whole thing up, I think could be a devastating issue. And the gun issue could make a real difference for gun owning Hispanics, recognizing that they're dealing with a party that may call itself pro-life, but doesn't care about their lives. It's interesting. I've been watching some of the ads. You know, there's uh, you can now on just on social media, you don't have to actually live in the States. You can just kind of see these ads. It's interesting. I haven't seen Norm on the some of the tighter kind of races. Take New Hampshire, for example, where I know that the majority of the state is actually very much polls have shown for years now, very much in favor of gun control. And it's it's interesting because um, Hassan's uh, opponent, Donald Balduck, I think is Balduck is how you say his name. Never, by the way, never actually won an election, doesn't have any elected experience compared to Hassan, what, winning three times now? It's interesting. Hassan has not invoked some of these issues. And I think to your point, I do think it's a mistake. I'm hoping though, look, it's we're we're, we're talking on this podcast about it because we're about a hundred days. And as David Axelrod liked to remind me back when I thought things were really dark in, in on occasion in 2010 for health reform, he's like a hundred days. That's like a lifetime. So I do think there's plenty of makeup room that we could have, but it's, it is, it is very, it will be interesting to see if some of the past tropes have held true that candidates with better experience, better war chests, name recognition. A lot of these are Democrats, Tim Ryan in Ohio, for example, against J.D. Vance, who had a lot of buzz, but literally has had nothing accomplished to his name in terms of protecting the people of Ohio. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see kind of how this shakes out. But I am hopeful about the Senate. The House, not as much. The last 10 days have made me much more hopeful for the Senate. Before we go with this, a couple of things worth mentioning. We're not just looking at House and Senate races. The governorships are absolutely crucial this time, and Republicans in many states, like Pennsylvania, have nominated people who, some of whom were at the Capitol on January 6th, Mastriano in Pennsylvania, others who are absolutely radical and are election deniers. If they win, it would have real implications for 2024. At the same time, we have races for secretaries of state who are the top election officials. Here, too, as in Arizona, election deniers. We have a Republican candidate for governor in Arizona who has basically said, if federal troops come into Arizona, we will fire on them. It's the old pre-Civil War nullification belief that you no longer have to be governed by the Constitution or federal law. We haven't seen anything like this. You used to see an occasional crazy radical running or racist running. Now they're all over the country, and these are really important, and that includes some of the state legislative races. So there are a lot of candidates out there to look towards and to support to keep the worst from happening. Kansas is one of those states, too. There's uh, Laura Kelly, the Democrat, and Derek Schmidt, Kansas's uh, governor. Uh, Again, you know, there's been a lot of stories about Kansas over the last several weeks, important ones. And to your point, I have uh, often been reminded since I'm a like you in D.C., kind of we tend to put a lot of time and energy on the House and Senate and the White House for a lot of reasons that are obvious. But as you mentioned, so much of what we saw dismantled in reproductive justice started in state legislatures, started with governors. And that includes, by the way, governors like Bashir and others who were brave enough in states that had a conservative majority 
but were able to try and hold back some of these things because they knew in the long run that doing something like what the state of Indiana just passed, where it basically put a complete ban on abortion with very little exception, does nobody any good. It doesn't help anybody, no matter what your position is. And so I think, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking closely at some of those races and maybe in future episodes we can, we've been talking about maybe having some either states, uh, in fact, listeners can let us know. We want to consider having some of the very people that have had to kind of make sure that not only are the elections fair and equitable, but have been challenged by, I think, some of the toxicity in the politics we've experienced. Thankfully to Donald Trump's exit, I'm hoping that that makes it easier. And, And I do think that the electorate has a bit of a cycle norm. I think we have one more kind of laundry cycle where we have to see some of the rise and fall of MAGA endorsed candidates. Some cases they might win and in a majority of cases, I hope they get trounced in order to let the Republican Party get it out of their system. But that means we're in for some painful terms up ahead in the near future. This is the time when we say goodbye to our listeners who are not members and shift to a segment that Norm and I will share around our experiences in working on campaigns and elections. But in the meantime, we want to thank everyone for listening. We hope that you'll subscribe. And then if you're active on social media, let people know about the podcast, Words Matter. It's a production of DSR Network. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated. Our wonderful production credit goes to Grant Haver for Words Matter. And DSR Network is a production Chris Cotnoir and colleagues, and we hope you listen next time. Subscribe, and we'll see you next week where we'll tackle on another topic that is important to Americans as we near the midterms this year.